Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. I'm going to talk about conflict resolution tonight. I've got a lot to say, because uh, the Bible has a lot to say. Um, feel free to take notes if you want to. You don't have to. At the end, you're going to get a handout that's going to say, have I almost everything I'm going to say? Probably not everything, not every illustration, but it should have every verse, every major point. Okay? So, in, unless you like want every Baptist sword drill when you were a kid that you were ever in, don't try to flip to all the verses that I'm going to mention. Uh, I'm not even going to. Uh, because, again, the Bible has a ton to say at this topic because it's such a big issue. Okay, So uh, let me kind of say this by way of uh, beginning, that I think the principles that we're going to talk about primarily are set in the context of Christians working out conflict between other Christians. And yet, I think for the most part, these principles could be used even among non-Christians or a Christian or non-Christian. Makes sense? Okay. And they could be used for the smallest thing, like my roommate keeps eating all my cereal and it's driving me crazy, up to the worst thing, like my fiance the day before the wedding broke it off and public humiliation and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, um, first thing, okay, this is all by way of introduction. I call this preparation, would be um, clarify the goal of the process. Okay. And there would be two main goals. The first would be this unity. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That means something to God's heart. He likes it. So we ought to want to shoot for unity. And yet, it should never be just unity for unity's sake. You know people like that? Well, let's just be unified, which degrades into, well, they don't talk about anything, so we don't argue about anything of substance. No, but it's unity and maturity, okay? You have to, the goal has to be, we want to have unity. We also want to have Maturity. We want to have the unity around Christ-centered maturity. Uh, James talks about uh, true wisdom is always, always peaceable. The goal is peace, but sometimes there has to be conflict to get to the real peace. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. There are a few passages I want you to look at with me that are uh, maybe more important. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 for this topic. Verse 15. If you, if you need one theme verse, if you're like, I can already tell there's going to be too much and I'm going to get overwhelmed, just remember this one verse. Okay, Here's a theme verse. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. All Christians are supposed to be growing in maturity, becoming more like Christ, getting closer to Christ in intimacy, and closer to one another as we grow closer to Christ. And so we should be willing to speak hard truth to one another, but try to say it in a loving way. Okay, most of us have personalities where we like to say hard truth and we don't care if it hurts people's feelings. That's not good. Uh, other people, this is probably more of this generation, uh, unless you're online, when you're face-to-face, it's like, I'm going to be really loving and nice and smiling and happy, and so if I have to, you know, submarine the truth to do that, I'll do it. Both are bad. Speak the truth in love. Second point about preparation, okay? Don't sinfully judge. Look over to Matthew 7. Here's another passage that I am going to want to look at. It's pretty important. One that I think most of us are pretty familiar with. Matthew chapter 7, you start in verse 1, and Jesus says, Do not judge lest you be judged. Okay? Verse 2 says this, uh, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I don't have time to do this, but you can look at other verses like John chapter 7, verse 24, and something really clearly uh, rises up out of the Bible. There's a right kind of judgment and there's a wrong kind of judgment. So let me just kind of give you the bottom line. If you, if you do a big study on that, 
right kind of judgment is it's a constructive critic. I want the best for you. I want you to be mature in Christ. And so I'm willing to say hard truth to you to criticize you, but in a constructive way, right? Wrong kind of judgment is a condemning kind of condescension. I'm looking down on you. I'm, I'm, I, there's no hope for you. You always do this. You never do that. You kind of speak with this authority almost like you're in the place of God, like you know everything, and you're that much better. Don't have that kind of heart, okay? Be a constructive critic, okay? Do not be uh, the, the, the condemner. Tim Keller has a great line when he talks about this, and he says, you, you know the cartoons, a lot of times like in the Wall Street Journal or something like that, more political cartoons, these are not funny, like ha-ha, you know, peanuts or whatever. But they tend to take the politician and whatever part of their body stands out the most, they exaggerate it. Maybe a really big ears or a big nose or something like that. A lot of times that's what we tend to do with people that we're in conflict with. That person always tells lies. And you're like, well, have you ever told a lie? Well, technically maybe once or twice, but you have to understand and there was a good read, right? We, we give ourselves a pass. I mean, I, I have been trying to help people in conflict before. And they're like, you're exaggerating. You always exaggerate. It's like, well, you just exaggerated two minutes ago. Okay? If, listen, judge other people the way you want to be judged. Better yet, judge yourself harsher than you would judge the other people. That's the best way to do it. Okay? Assume the best. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, the love chapter, right? says, uh, love believes all things. That's one of the phrases in there. Now, if you take that to an extreme, it becomes unrealistic. So here's the best, I think, understanding interpretation of that verse. What does it really mean? Uh, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And yet Proverbs 14, verse 15 talks about don't be naive, right? You, you, you can take it too far. So you assume the best. You give them the benefit of the doubt as long as you can. This is kind of a side principle. This is actually not on the thing because I forgot to write it down. Okay, but it's an important one. When you get to the point where you can't assume the best anymore, what most of us do, if like if the pendulum has been over here, I'm assuming the best, I'm assuming the best, I'm like, I can't assume the best anymore. We swing the pendulum all the way over. Now I assume the worst. Bad practice. Much better to say, I assume the best, I assume the best, I can't take it anymore. What do you do? What's the middle step? You ask. You just go ask an honest question. Hey, you keep showing up to work late every single day. It seems to me you don't respect me as your manager. It seems to me you don't look at But I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe your car literally breaks down every day. You ask before you jump to assuming the negative. Does that make sense? Again, all of this is by way of introduction, preparation. Okay? The third kind of point under that would be this. Overlook the sin if you can. Proverbs 19.11. It's the glory of man to overlook an offense. Why? Because it's the glory of God. How many times do you and I sin every single day and God never makes a big deal about it? We don't realize we sin. We don't ever go pray and confess. And God just in his mercy, he just overlooks it, right? Be like God. But there's some subpoints to this, okay? You have to know yourself. Don't try to act like you're more spiritually mature than you really are. You understand what I mean by that? When my wife and I first got married, I was like, man, I'm going to overlook everything. That didn't work well, right? Because what that's called is just stuffing it. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm overlooking. I'm like, Jesus. And then the next day, you're like, rah! I can't take it. So, listen, here's a litmus test. If the next morning you're still thinking about it, and not like in a funny ha-ha way, I can't believe she said that, but like a grind your teeth, I want to kill that person, you didn't overlook it, right? Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Okay? If the next day you're like, I was an idiot. Why did I get so mad? That is kind of funny now. But you overlooked it. 
move on. But don't think you're more spiritually mature than you are because Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 talks about the root of bitterness. Right? Think about a root for a second. Roots tend to be underground, but they're alive and they're growing and they're going to produce something that will pop up one day. Bitterness, I think, Pastor Reader is probably the first person I heard say this, but somebody probably said it before him. Bitterness is like the poison pill I take and wait for the other person to die. They may not even know I'm mad. And I'm over there just stewing in anger. And it's killing you. Better to go have a conversation. Better to go confront. Okay? Um, when should you not overlook? This is a little sub-point to the sub-point. When should you not overlook? Three times. If it's not best for you. I just talked about that. But the second time would be don't overlook it if it's not best for that person. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any spiritual transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Right? So if I see somebody else stuck in a pattern of sin, even if it's not hurting me and I can overlook it, you should still love that person and go and say, I got to talk to you. And the other time I'd say, when should you not overlook something? Is if that person's sin, it may not be hurting you. Maybe you don't even think it's hurting them that bad, but it's hurting other people. Maybe the classic biblical example of this would be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, when Peter, the super apostle himself, quits eating with the Gentiles, and then other leaders like Barnabas say, I guess we can't eat with Gentiles either. You remember what Paul did? He stood up and rebuked him publicly because what he realized is this may not be hurting me very much, may not be hurting Peter very much, but it's hurting the whole church. So sometimes you have to step in because it's hurting other people. All right, the fourth point about preparation. At this point, I, and I hope you know, realize what I'm doing here. At this point, you haven't even talked to the person. This is all you thinking and praying. Maybe talking with a mentor or a pastor giving advice. Fourth thing with this, forgive in your heart in prayer whether you overlook it or not. Okay? So let's look at this verse together too. Keep your finger in Matthew because we'll probably come back there. But flip over really quick to Mark chapter 11. This is an important verse. Mark chapter 11. Let's skip down to verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now, we could do a whole series on that one verse. But I'll just say this. Whether you're going to overlook it or you're not going to overlook it, before you ever go have the conversation, there ought to be, and I'll explain more about what I mean by this before we get done, there ought to be an attitude in your heart that says, I am leaning into forgiveness. I have a posture of forgiveness. I want to forgive them. I'm praying to forgive them. I'm trying to forgive them. I'm planning to forgive them. The easiest way to say it is, I'm, I'm offering them forgiveness. I'm, I'm giving them forgiveness. If they'll take it. Does that make sense? That's not full reconciliation, but you've got to do that work in your heart before you go and talk to them. Because if you don't, and this is what a lot of us do, well, I'm going to go confront them. And if they respond well, they will tell then I'll forgive them. That seems pretty logical. But do you see the danger? How do you know if they ever repent enough? How do you ever know if it's deep enough or real enough? And here's the problem. Essentially what you're saying is, I'm going to make them work for my forgiveness by the depth of their repentance. And that won't work. Right? And, and why not? I mean, what, what, what's the Sunday school answer to why that's not a good plan? It's not the way Jesus did with us, right? He offered forgiveness when we were still enemies. And we got to have the same heart. Okay? 
All this is about preparation. Okay? Um, clarify and repent of your own sin first. Right back in Matthew 7. You hypocrite. Why are you trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a massive log sticking out of your eye? Imagine if you were in a car accident with a friend and you hit a telephone pole and a gigantic splinter came off the telephone pole like the size of a forearm. It was stuck into your eyeball. And then you looked over at your driving companion and they had like a tiny piece of glass sitting on their eyelid. And with the forearm-sized piece of wood sticking out of your left eyeball, you said, let me get that little shard of glass out of your eyebrow real quick. It's like, you moron. You have a bigger problem. You know, what Jesus is not saying is that we always have the bigger sin. But what he is saying is that even if I technically have the smaller sin, my sin always ought to seem bigger okay, and worse to me because it's closer and I have more responsibility for it. Does that make sense? Now, I, we were doing some pre-marriage counseling one time with a couple, and uh, we were going through this passage in the context of you know, dating and marriage, and the guy was a young Christian, which I love doing stuff like this with young Christians because they, they tend to not know the Sunday school answers. So they speak first and think later. He's like, yeah, I really hate this passage. And, and, and the reason I hate this passage is if you do this, you're never getting around to rebuking the other person. And I said, well, I appreciate you telling me you're hating the words of Jesus, uh, but uh, you're not understanding because Jesus says, first get the log out of your eye, then you will be able to see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Does that make sense? The goal is to go and confront to get the stuff out. You just got to deal with your own heart first. Now, what if you're in conflict with somebody and as you're walking through all these points of preparation you pray, and you honestly say in your heart before God, I don't think I had any sinless conflict. You're not saying you're sinlessly perfect before Jesus, but you're saying this human level conflict with me and this other person, I feel like I have nothing. That's not bad to say. David said that a lot in the Psalms about his conflict between him and Saul. Then you've got to have this attitude. Accept the grace of God, there go I. Does that make sense? You can't go into it high mighty. You've got to go into it with an honest humility. You know what? I'm not aware of any sin I have in this conflict. But I'm not coming in high and mighty like, how dare you sin against me? Because if just one or two things would have gone different, I could be the big bad sinner. And you might be the more practically righteous one. Does that make sense? And that hard attitude will be a game changer. So a quick story. Years ago, I had a good friend, uh, married. Uh, things were going really bad in this marriage. A lot of it had to do with pornography addiction. And I had rebuked him. Another friend had rebuked him. His wife had rebuked him. And there was like no change. And so we were going back to have like a second review following Matthew 18. And this, this was one of my best friends. He was actually on my support team. That's never fun, getting to go confront the guy that's giving money to your ministry. And so there were lots of reasons I did not want to go and have this conversation. And I would go on these long walks, kind of pray and think. But, but part of what drove me was twofold. You know, at that point in my life, I wouldn't deal with pornography. But I had another season. So I was able to say, you know what? I'm not where you're at, but I very well could be. And if I was where you were at, I'm coming after you the way I want you to come after me. Does that make sense? And it was a game changer when I went to him. In my attitude, it actually led me to be more gentle, more compassionate. It also led me to be more aggressive, which seems impossible, humanly speaking, right? You got to be full of the Holy Spirit. Speak the truth in love. Um... And then the last thing I'd say, and this is, again, all by way of preparation. No way I'm getting through this whole thing. Uh, confess and repent of your own sin to God first to be reconciled to Him. The real conflict is always between you and God. That's the one that matters most, right? So 1 John 1, 9, 
confess your sin, is faithful, just, forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all righteousness. Now, the first major point, all that's preparation. That's what you do in your heart before you can go. But then you go, and I say consideration. We're still figuring out, should I go or should I not go? Two questions here. The first is, when should you go to confess to them or confront them? And I just said this, don't go on a witch hunt for sin. Don't become the fruit police. Like you're always looking out for, oh, I think that guy said a bad word. I'm going to go get him, right? Don't be that guy. Nobody likes that guy, all right? Or that girl. You should go if you know they have something against you. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, where he says, if you're at the altar worshiping, which is the most important thing, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And there you remember, not that you have something against somebody else. You might think you're pure and clean in this human interaction. But they have something against you. You leave your sacrifice at the altar and you go meet with them. And almost certainly, he was talking about pilgrims who'd come to the temple of Jerusalem. It might have been days' journey to go back. Leave the sacrifice. That's how much value God puts on human reconciliation between Christians, for sure. Let me say something. Forget later. There's a place where John MacArthur says, to forgive is the most divine thing we can do. Seems right, doesn't it? And then I'll flip it and say the converse. If the most divine thing that we can do is to forgive, the most demonic thing that we can do is to hold grudge. This is serious business, guys. So if you think they have something against you, you go to them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go. So again, it's always your move. They got something against me, it's your move. I got something against them, it's your move. And then like I already said, if there might be somebody that you know is stuck in sin, even though it's not against you, does that make sense? And sometimes you may still go. Now let me get real technical with your sake. You're like, well, there's people sinning all the time, all everywhere. Should I just be out there rebuking people all the time? No. So here's four questions to know when you should maybe go confront somebody when you don't even have anything to do with it. Does that make sense? You want to do it? Okay. The first thing is, how relationally or physically close are they to you? If it's your best friend and you hear them cussing like a sailor, you should probably say something to them. They claim to be a Christian. If you watched a movie with Brad Pitt last night and he said a cuss word, you probably don't need to get on a plane to Hollywood and go rebuke Brad Pitt, all right? <laughs> the second point, okay? Uh, how much authority do you have for them? If I see my kids at church acting a fool, I'm probably going to say something to them. I have authority and responsibility to them. If I see somebody else's kids acting a fool, I'm probably not going to say to them. I've got too much going on. All right? <laughs> Third, how likely are they to listen to you? This is a big one. Just got off the phone driving up here with somebody talking about this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says this. Don't throw your pearls before swine. And what Jesus is saying is when you have precious truth, but you have somebody that's acting like an ignorant animal, even a Christian, sometimes we act that way, don't we? Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Pray for them. Probably don't go talk to them. And then how serious is the sin? I already gave the example of Paul rebuking Peter because his sin was so serious. So here's a quote by Andrew Dave Harvey. Listen to this. This is really good. This is when you're considering, should I go or should I not? If we avoid confrontation, we'll just get confrontation anyway. Right? And I've said there's a right time to overlook. But if you're... you're you're telling yourself you're overlooking, but what you're really doing is you're terrified of confrontation. So you're just always avoiding, always avoiding. You're going to get the confrontation anyway. Because sin unaddressed is sin unconfined. In an attempt to preserve peace, we sow war. God's purpose for reproof is not to achieve a hassle-free life. And let's just be honest with saying, isn't that what most of us really want, if we're honest? Right? We say, I want to be like Jesus. 
but I'm like, really, I just want my life to be fun and easy. And, G- and Jesus says, well, I sacrificed and suffered a lot on earth. You want to be like me, you get to sacrifice and suffer. And we're like, ah, can we walk out some middle ground? God's goal is not to achieve a hassle-free life, but to inspire repentance unto godliness. Okay, so, second main point, confession. All right, and let me just, a little side note. When you go, your body language, your tone of voice, okay, your, your facial expressions, they matter. And a lot of times, if those are bad, and listen, even unintentionally so, right? You've had that conversation with somebody? Hey, man, you look angry. I'm not angry. I'm smiling like a lark on the inside. <laughs> well, you don't look that way on the outside. I can't see your heart. If body language, tone of voice, facial expression are wrong, it usually ruins the message, even if the message was perfect. I was leading an overseas missions trip years ago with my wife and I and about 20 singles, okay? Ten guys, ten girls. There was this one guy who was a jerk. He kept offending all the girls. And we have a group meeting kind of in a room like this. He's like, I'm so sorry, I'm going to apologize. And we kind of sit around and it was kind of like a middle school dance. The girls sat on this side, the guy sat over here. He's like, hey, dear, I didn't let y'all know. I know I've been kind of a jerk lately, so I'm sorry. Whatever, I'm going to try better. You know, kind of, it's like, you think the girls felt love? I mean, you felt like, he's so sweet, he's so godly. No, they're like, we hate him even more. <laughs> because that just seemed sarcastic. It seemed unreal. So all that stuff matters. Okay. Um, First point under confession. Confess your sin first. Right? We already said that. Matthew 7. And ideally, it's ideal if you can say, I did this. It was wrong. I'm sorry. And you know, what I should have done instead of that was this. Here's the way I should have treated you. Here's the way I should have spoken. Secondly, then shut your mouth. That's very hard for most of us, right? And listen to any criticisms they might want to have. They might want to say, yeah, you did do that, and I got 17 more things you did. Sit there and take it. Get clear. I mean, get, that's, that's part of the reason I spent so much time on preparation. You better get your heart right. Because what you ideally want to be able to say when you go meet with that person is I'm going to confess first if I have anything to confess. And I want you to unload your bullets, keep pulling the trigger until there's nothing left. I want you to get it all on the table, right? Let's don't do this more than once. So let's go ahead and get it all out. Bring the box of tissue with you. Just get ready. And then, after you've heard everything they say, if they have said some stuff that you agree with, confess honestly in light of that, right? James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another so you may be evil. Confess. And then, pledge by God's grace. Listen, I'm not perfect, but by God's grace, I'm going to do my best to never do that again. That's sincere repentance. And then fifth, the things that maybe they said, it's like, I, you know, listen, never apologize for something you really don't think you've done, Right? We've probably all done that thing because it feels like the Christian thing to do, right? You told me a lie. I'm sorry. And you're thinking, I didn't tell a lie. And then later, like, well, you know, you admitted to being a liar last night. Like, well, not really. I was just trying to get you to shut up. Like, that's not going to help the conflict. <laughs> but you, what you can say is this. You said some things that I agree with and I apologize for. You said some other stuff that I, I'm not sure about. And I, will you give me some time to think and pray about it? And you really need to go think Right? Don't get super defensive. I never. Give me time to think about it. Start with confession. Okay? The third point this confrontation. Now it's time for you to rebuke them. This is the whole reason a couple of you came, all right? Um, say the hardest things in the softest ways. I think that's what Matthew Henry said, right? Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. This is definitely a Matthew Henry quote. Have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, 
and a lady's hand. Now just think about this. Imagine if you found out you had a cancerous tumor on your brain. What kind of brain surgeon would you want? I mean, you would want one in one sense that was very precise, right? I mean, you would want him to have a laser point scalpel. So, hey, don't cut anything extra just for fun, right? Don't come in with a bad axe. You'd also, in one sense, want him to be very gentle. I mean, can you be tender up there next to my eyeball? Okay? Don't be too rough. But then lastly, you would want him to be aggressive, would you not? You'd say, listen, get it all in one fell swoop. Let's don't do this again. And again, that's a rare combination that really only the Holy Spirit can bring together. So the second thing is confront them on sinful things that you've seen and heard personally. Don't, don't do the, well, you know, Bob told me that you uh, were doing this last night. Don't do that. Unless you're like best friends with that person. Don't do that. If Bob saw it, Bob should talk to them. Talk about what you've seen, what you've heard. Okay? Ideally, you don't have to do this. Ideally, give them a verse that talks about the sin they did. Ideally, give them a specific example. You ever have one of these conversations? Well, you do this all the time. Okay, I, I really want to hear you. Uh, I don't think I do that. Can you give me an example? Well, I can't think of any right now. Now listen, this is mainly for the guys. When your girlfriend does that, we tend to say, oh, everything you said doesn't count. I've done it. Probably most of you have done it. I love you. We're morons when we do that. Women do have a sixth sense. They probably are smelling something almost spiritually before they can see it. Still be humble. Like, I don't agree with you, but I'll pray about it. Remember that? Apply that. But women, really everybody, but especially for the women, if you want to have a snowball's chance in Hades of the other person listening to you, and they're not the Apostle Paul. It helps a ton if you can say, I have a specific example. And you don't, it's, listen, it's not a mean-spirited way. It's just a way to say, here's a concrete example of what I'm talking about. That makes sense? And that really goes both ways. Um, try to avoid assuming or imputing motives so hard. You did this, and I know the reason you did You don't know the reason. We're not Jesus, right? You can say, I think the reason you did, but talk about what you see and what you know for sure and not the motives. And also, secondly, don't confront them over things that are more about preference and not about sin. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons I said get a verse. Because you're like, I'm going to go rebuke this person for something you can't find a verse. Maybe you don't need to rebuke them. This person isn't nice. Show me the verse that says, be nice all the time. Now, kindness. All right. Maybe, right? But don't just go rebuke on stuff you don't like. You listen to loud non-Christian music, and I think that's sinful. You got a verse? Then keep it to yourself, right? Um, that's just advice. And probably not good advice, all right? Third thing, let them respond. Say what you want to say, and be quiet, let them respond. And then fourth, if need be, if they're asking questions, clarify, answer their questions they may have honestly and humbly. All right, almost done. Conclusion. Forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4. Everybody go back there if you've got your Bibles open. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, the very last verse, verse 32, says this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's got to be your heart attitude, okay? If they repent, you grant them forgiveness. Remember I said, even before you go in your heart, you're, you're offering them forgiveness. We don't have time to do the whole study, but trust me, follow through all these verses and you'll see it. 
Jesus says, if you, if you have something against somebody, you're staying praying, you forgive. Well, that's often forgiveness. How do I know that? Because in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, he says, you go confront them, and if they repent, then you forgive them. Well, I already forgave You already offered them forgiveness. You don't fully grant forgiveness until they repent. Does that make sense? That's when real reconciliation happens. It takes two to tango. And I'll give you one illustration that before we're done. Let me just say a couple other things, okay? When you grant forgiveness, it basically is a promise to never bring up the issue again to harm them. And you really make, I'm not going to bring it up to you again. I'm not going to bring it up to other people again. Again, to harm them. You might have to bring it up in some positive way, right? Testimony, maybe. And here's the most important one. I'm never going to bring it up again to myself. Quit playing the mental tape over and over and over again. Shoot it over. How dare. Right? That's what it means to forgive and forget. You don't literally forget, but you don't actively bring it back to mind. Um, forgiveness is often a choice before it is a feeling. That is so hard for this day and age. Well, I don't feel like I'm forgiving. Who cares? Jesus said forgive. Right? So what you do is say, I'm going to forgive you. And every time the angry thoughts come back up, I say, Jesus, help me. I said I'm going to forgive. And if you persevere in that, the feelings will come. It's a commitment before it's a feeling often. Um, sometimes you have to give them consequences. And let me just say this. There is not necessarily, it's not necessarily antithetical to say there are consequences for what you've done, but I still forgive you and will reconcile if you don't believe that, go read the story of what God did with David after the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. He says, taking your sin away, everything's great, and I'm going to kill your baby. There's painful consequences sometimes for sin, and yet there can still be full reconciliation. Be careful with that one, but it's in there. If they don't repent, what if they don't repent, right? Matthew 18, if they don't repent, you go back with one or two others, and you rebuke them again. It's like, who are these mysterious one or two others? It can either be somebody else they've sinned against, or it can be another person that maybe has seen them sin, although they haven't been personally sinned against, or it could be a third party like a mediator, a counselor, a pastor that could go to help. That makes sense. And then if they don't respond even after that, you take it to the church, to the elders. And in some sense, it's out of your hand. You leave it there. But listen, side note, because I know some of y'all are still in transition, you're maybe going to get a different career, move to different churches. Go to a good church, and here, there's a lot of ways to determine it, but here's one clear litmus test. Does the church practice church discipline? You won't care until your life falls apart, and then you'll care. And then you'll really want it. And most churches today don't. And you want elders that are willing to shepherd at a high level and get involved in people's mess. Okay? If they still don't repent, you take it to church. But listen, you'd be ready and willing to repeatedly forgive, even if they sin repeatedly. Remember Jesus? Remember Peter and Jesus? How many times I gotta forgive? How about seven, Jesus? That's better than the Pharisees. I'm awesome, right? No, it's seven times seventy. And he doesn't mean four hundred and ninety. I'm checking them off. He means forever. If the person seems to come back and repent, you keep forgiving. Now, whether they repent or not, you stay in a position of offering forgiveness in your heart. Romans 12, 18, as far as it goes with you, you be at peace with all men. I can't guarantee how they respond. I can you know. By God's grace, guarantee I'll respond. I've got to keep this position of an open heart when he loves. So let me just end with this. Think about Jesus on the cross. 
all of his opponents out there. And what did he pray for them in that moment? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What was he doing in that moment? He was offering forgiveness. Now, almost certainly some of those people later repented. It seems like one of the centurions repented instantly after he died. So, that centurion would have been reconciled to Jesus, right? One of the thieves on the cross. Reconciled to Jesus because Jesus offered forgiveness and they accepted their repentance. But most of those people probably never repented. They're not reconciled. They're in hell. Our primary job is to offer a heart of forgiveness. And maybe the main way you can test, how do I know if I'm doing that, is your prayer life. When you're honestly alone in your secret closet in your prayer life praying for these people, can you say, God, these people have hurt me so bad. I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm grieved, I'm embarrassed, but part of me wants them to get justice, but more than that, I want them to get grace. I want them to get mercy. I want what's best for them. That's the sign that you're really offering forgiveness. And that's the best chance that hopefully they repent and then you can grant forgiveness and there's reconciliation just like we have in Christ. All right? Lord Jesus, you're so gracious and tenderhearted to us when we were your enemies and still after when we're technically your followers but we oftentimes don't live it. Thank you for your great mercy and your sin-destroying power of the cross and the resurrection. Make us peacemakers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.